1: The Economist.
2: In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of some of the tastiest morsels from this week's coverage. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor. On the menu this week, the future of television, how to win more Olympic medals and the economic history of skyscrapers. But first, Nightmare on Main Street was our cover line this week. After house prices in America began to tumble in the summer of 2006, a chain reaction led to a global financial crisis. A decade on, many presume that the mortgage debt problem has been solved, but this is far from the case, as our cover leader explained.
0: What are the most dysfunctional parts of the global financial system? China's banking industry, you might say with its great wall of bad debts and state-sponsored cronyism. A sure contender, indeed. Or the Eurozone's taped-together single currency, which stretches across 19 different countries, each with its own debts and frail financial firms. Another potential disaster area, but it's America's housing market which worries us most. It is the world's largest asset class, worth $26 trillion more than America's stock market. The slab of mortgage debt lurking beneath it is the planet's biggest concentration of financial risk. Vast, nationalized, unprofitable, and undercapitalized, it remains a menace to the world's biggest economy. Much of the risk is because, unlike in
2: many other countries, America's bond market does the lending, not its banks.
0: Loans are bundled into bonds, guaranteed and sold around the world. Investors on Wall Street, in Beijing and elsewhere own $7 trillion worth. After the 2008 tumble, the government stepped in to help. Unfortunately, it hasn't yet
2: stepped out again.
0: Now, 65 to 80% of new mortgages are stamped with a guarantee from Uncle Sam that protects investors from the risk that homeowners default. In the heartland of free enterprise, the mortgage system is worthy of Gosplan. That's the old Soviet planning committee, of course.
2: Anyway, a nationalised system means collectivised responsibility.
0: If there is another crisis, the taxpayer will still have to foot the bill, which could be 2-4% to of GDP, not far off the cost of the 2008-9 bank bailout. You can read all of our analysis of America's housing market and how it became
2: accidentally nationalised in this week's issue. Leaving behind the debt lurking in America's basements, we flip through to our Asia section and visit India, where we explored a humble national treasure cows. They're a sacred part of business, politics
3: and religion. Yet, as holy strictures increase, entrepreneurs have to find new ways to milk a profit. India is home to some 200 million cows and more than 100 million water buffaloes. A crucial distinction, we explained. India now rivals Brazil and Australia as the world's biggest exporter of beef, earning around $4 billion a year. But the beef is nearly all buffalo, most of India's 29 states now ban or restrict the slaughter of cows. Under such religious constraints, canny entrepreneurs have begun milking the cows for all they're worth. One promising line of business has been to become a gaurak shack, or cow protector. Some of these run charitably funded retirement homes for ageing cows, including rural, ranch-style facilities advertised on television. It sounds divine. Indeed, when it comes to business opportunities, cows
2: turn out to be a fertile
3: source. Shankar Lal, an ideological ally of the Prime Ministers, in an interview with the Indian Express, extolled the many health merits of cow dung. Spreading a bit on the back of a smartphone, as he does every week, apparently protects against harmful radiation. I think I'll stick with the radiation, thank you. As India's entrepreneurs tend to their cash cows, we
2: move to Italy, where a money-making national pastime has recently come under intense scrutiny. Football rivalry is embedded in Italian culture, and betting is popular.
3: But as an article in our Europe section explained, the competition may not be quite as healthy as it seems. When the Italian football season opens on August 20th, fans who have been staving off their soccer cravings by following news of summer transfers will at last get a chance to watch some real competition. Ah, but will they? Recent investigations have unearthed match-fixing underfoot all over the country. In May this year... In the northern town of Cremona, a judge sent more than 90 people to trial, including a former player for Italy. And around the same time, but in a different place... In the southern city of Bari, five people convicted of rigging major Serie Bay games in the 2007-2008 and 2008 to 2009 seasons were given suspended sentences. And in June, another score for the authorities. Prosecutors in the southern city of Catanzaro sought the indictment of 63 people accused of involvement with criminal networks that rigged matches in the lower divisions. The jury's still out on that one. One thing, however, is certain. It is hard to say whether all this activity shows Italy's football to be unusually corrupt or that its prosecutors are exceptionally diligent in pursuing match-fixing. The desire to win can mean morality may be set aside, but on our Money Talks podcast this
2: week, we examined the legal ways to encourage better performances. Given the obsession with each nation's tally of medals at this year's Olympic Games, we explored the competing financial strategies involved in bringing home a heftier haul Our economics correspondent, Sumea Keynes, teased out the tactics in use around the world.
1: So it's really fun to to look around and and see what the different countries try. So this strategy of kind of sending the funding towards people who are likely to do well seems to be fairly common. So in Canada, there's this kind of on-the-podium strategy that they tried after they hosted the olympics twice and won no no gold medals the other thing is you can award cash prizes for getting a gold medal so in singapore apparently they're offering uh 753000 dollars for a gold medal and 230000 dollars in kazakhstan The US only offers kind of around $25,000 for a gold medal, but it's kind of amazing because Britain doesn't offer anything like that.
3: So they just uh, have to make do with the the, the joy of winning a gold medal, which I'm sure is enough for most of them.
2: You can listen to Money Talks each Tuesday for more analysis of business and finance. In the field of video streaming, at least, there's no question who's on top of the podium. Netflix. But having created a new model for online video, it now has eager rivals snapping at its heels. Can Netflix stay on top? The lead article in our business section this week tuned into the discussion about the future of television.
4: Netflix was once a humble DVD by mail business based in Los Gatos, California. Things have certainly changed. The subscription service expanded early this year from a mere 60 countries into a total of over 190. It has 83 million subscribers, including 47 million in America, who pay between $8 and $12 a month for it. And as it's spread
2: around the world, Netflix has shaken up an ageing industry, while changing the way television is consumed.
4: It delivers programming on a global basis, on demand and without ad breaks. That has vastly accelerated viewers' shift away from the existing pay TV and broadcast system that has been built along national borders, time schedules, release windows and sponsorships. With consumers
2: binging on its product, Netflix is binging on success.
4: The firm's budget for making and licensing content, $6 billion this year, is now triple that of HBO, the original champion of quality subscription drama. Yet as competitors edge closer, costs must creep higher. After several years of rapid expansion, competition is looming larger, including from Amazon. The big background question for Netflix is whether it can continue to make and acquire content that appeals to a sufficient number of its subscribers. That
2: is an expensive proposition. But whoever ends up on top, it seems consumers are the real winners.
4: Whether it is Netflix or one of its rivals that casts caution to the wind and splurges the cash will hardly occupy viewers' minds as they lower the blinds and prepare to binge. Sound familiar? Do you struggle
2: to say no to just one more episode? In this week's Babbage podcast, we explored the science of self-restraint While hundreds of papers in the past have suggested that willpower is a finite resource, a new study has picked some holes in the argument, much as you might do to some leftover cake. Science correspondent Matt Kaplan explains what the impact of this large study is, not just for you, but for the field of psychology itself. It's nice that we have more self control than we thought we did. It's wonderful that I you know now can resist that piece of chocolate cake at the end of the day when I previously thought that I might not be able to because of previous research. But actually, what I think is really awesome here is in two thousand fifteen, there was a, a study that was conducted I think it was at a University of Virginia where a, a team of scientists looked at a hundred top psychology studies and found that only thirty nine percent of them were repeatable that was that was serious a serious find. And the fact that this kind of self-testing, self-policing in the psychological environment by scientists is happening, again, is fantastic. It shows that psychology is really serious about policing itself and looking after the numbers. We finish with a taste of our books and arts section and an area of architecture that throws self-restraint out of the window, probably quite a high one. We reviewed a new book which explores the towering history of skyscrapers, using economics to explain how
1: buildings got so big. The world is in the middle of an unprecedented skyscraper boom. Last year, more than 100 buildings over 200 metres tall were built. What forces drive such ambition? To answer this, we're taken on a historical jaunt to the heights of Manhattan. In the late 19th century, the island was booming. Demand to be in particular areas was so high that the only option was to build up. New York's first skyscraper, the 11-storey Tower Building, went up in the 1880s. It was a soaring success and a technological breakthrough. The architect, Bradford Lee Gilbert, realised that supporting a super-tall building using conventional techniques would require walls so thick that there would be little floor space left. So he created an iron frame for the building. On a gusty morning in 1888, New Yorkers anxiously watched Gilbert as he climbed right to the top. Clearly as bold as his building, the author of the book, Jason Barr, dispels some popular
2: myths, such as the skyscraper curse.
1: Some economists reckon that a boom in skyscraper construction artificially forces up the price of land. Developers want to build an even taller building than their rivals, so they furiously compete for plots. This can push an economy into bubble territory, the thinking goes. Yet the author's statistical analysis suggests otherwise. Over the long sweep of history, skyscraper construction is rational. Bursts of activity tend to follow an increase in land values, but not the other way around. A boom to follow a boom. Our reviewer praised the book's grasp of the lofty heights. Economists will appreciate Mr Barr's careful use of wonky concepts. Architects and historians will enjoy his keen eye for detail. But whatever your persuasion, after reading this book, you will never look up at a skyscraper the same way again. Onwards and
2: upwards, then. I'm Tom Standage, and that was our tasting menu. Do send us your feedback via email to radioeconomist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist. <music>
1: Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.